0: Today is Father's Day. (laughs) Dads, the reality is we don't do a whole lot. It's the moms that do all the work, right? We all know that. But I'd like to acknowledge the dads for a second. So will you stand up if you are? And we as a church will give you a big hand. Here we go. Thank you. I love it when I hear stories about um, folks who have been in our church for a while. And they'll come up after a Sunday and they'll do one of these. They'll be like, Pastor Peter, I want to introduce you to. And they'll introduce me to like two or three friends. And then I'll hear the story of how. This person's passion and love for what God is doing here is just overflowing out of them so that they can't help but talk about who God is and what he is doing here. So they invite their friends. I love when those moments happen. And I keep telling you guys that our church and God expanding the mission of our church is not going to happen because we have great Sunday programs or we're really savvy at marketing. We don't have a marketing budget but it's when lives are being transformed and they're going out and saying to their friends, family, neighbors, Christian or not, you got to come you got to come and check out what God is doing. And I love that when that happens. So I encourage those of you as we've continually been talking about what it means to live a missional life, one of the best ways to do that is to talk about who God is and what he is doing here and invite I had a really cool moment this week. Michael and I were at the alderman's office doing some business, and I got into one of these conversations that I love. We sat, uh, uh, we we had, like I said, some business to talk talk about, and while they were helping us out, there was a guy named Bogey. I'm not kidding, that's his name, Bogey. There's another guy named uh, uh, Jamie, okay, and they're kind of helping us out. And Bogey decides to have a spiritual conversation. So he says to me, he goes, So uh, so you're a pastor, huh? I go, Yep, yep, pastor. Okay. He says, you know, I grew up Catholic. And whenever I hear that, I just go, oh, you know, because <laughs> I hear it so often, right? Like I grew up Catholic. Sometimes it's like synonymous with I grew up in a fundamentalist church. You know, one of those I'm like bracing myself and says, you know what? I said, when I, be- when I became like a, a young man in my 20s, I just stopped going. I gave up on that religion stuff. And then he says, you know, for me, all faiths are the same. All religions are the same. We all, you know, uh, 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 desire and seek this thing. But at the end of the day, maybe it's a force, maybe something out there. But it really doesn't matter what you believe. And then Jamie's kind of over here listening. You know, he's looking at his computer. He goes, he goes I-, I don't believe that. So I say to Jamie, I go, what do you believe? And then Jamie goes, here's what I believe. I believe that this right here on earth, this is like purgatory. Like, really? Yeah, it's like purgatory. So he goes, so depending on what you do in this life, you kind of go to heaven or hell, right? So here I am having this conversation with these two people. And then this Puerto Rican lady who worked like at the office, answering phones, she overheard us. So she scurries out and she goes, "Uh, my mom died like six months ago. And she was a really good person, really, really developed, you know, churchgoer. She's, where is she? Is she in heaven or hell? So Michael and I are sitting there, you know, and I look at Michael. Michael looks at me with that look. Michael as Michael was, it's all yours, Pastor. I go, all right. Well, all right, fine, fine, fine. I love that, right? So I said, I said, let me get this straight, Bogey. I said, so you, the problem with you is you think Christianity is like exclusive. He's like, yeah, it's exclusive. Well, it's all the same. He's like, to believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, that's, that's exclusive. It's offensive to me. And I say to Jamie, I said, so Jamie, let me get this straight. So you believe that in order to go to heaven, you need to be a good person. And I said to both of them, I said, well, here's what I believe. I said, I'm a Christian and here's what I believe. I, I, I said, I, I said, Bogey, you, you think Christianity might be exclusive, but I think your faith, belief, or whatever you believe, and Jamie, you're, it's just as exclusive. And I said, I said, Jamie, let me ask you a question. I said, so what happens if you're not a very good person? What happens if you live 70, 80 years and you're not a very good person? Where do you go? He goes, well, you know, you go to, like, okay. I say, well, then I don't have a shot. And he looks at me, he's like, what? He's like, I don't have a chance because I'm not a very good person. But your pal no, 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 no. I'm not a very good person. So according to your faith system, like 70, 80 years, I don't have a shot. So according to your faith system, where good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, I don't. And I said to Bogey, I said, Bogey, you too. I mean, Jesus Christ is the only way of truth. Uh, Jesus Christ, you think Christianity is exclusive because it's the only way. But isn't it just as exclusive, though, to say that you need to be a good person to go to heaven? Because you're excluding, when you say that, all the bad people who don't live very good lives. And he looks at me, he's like, hmm. I said, yeah. What if I told you guys that Jesus Christ didn't come... And do what you think he did, which is he died, he rose so that good people can go to heaven, bad people go to hell. What if he died and rose so that bad people like me and a bunch of people around this world, because of what Christ has done, can be accepted by God? That it's not about our achievement, our morality, our good lives that gains acceptance to God, but about the work of Jesus Christ. That he lived the life he should have lived and he died the death we should have died. And faith in him imparts that life to us and acceptance. See, I said to him, I said, see, the problem with our world is we try and decrease the holiness of God so that we could feel better about ourselves. But when you do that, you also decrease the power of grace. We're all scared to go, God, I can't meet your demands. I'm such a sinner. So I'm just going to think of God as this very, you know, docile sort of deity who kind of accepts everybody. But when you do that, you decrease the power of grace because the power of grace comes when you and I go, I'm not a very good person. I'm a pastor, but it doesn't matter. Seven eight years on this earth in a balanced scale, I'm not going to live a very good life. But... Jesus Christ lived the life I should have lived. And when I believe in him, that perfect life becomes mine. And all of a sudden, the power of grace, because I'm like, I'm so bad, but I'm so loved. Gospel. It's not how we gain achievement with God or how we forfeit in our failure, but it's that Jesus, God is the only God who makes the demand and meets it at the same time on the cross. So if you're a Christian and you've been struggling with the whole holy. I don't like to think of God to be holy, perfect. Because, you know, if you do that, then you decrease the power of the gospel in your life. Because it is to those who say, I got no shot that Jesus Christ comes and says, precisely. Is this changing you? Also, oh, I did that, right? And I stepped back and I said, how would you guys like to come to a church that actually believes this? And they looked at me and they said, maybe, maybe. Open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 21, verse 27. We are plodding along. We're going to cover massive amounts of scripture today. So have your Bibles ready. Have your notebooks ready. Look up on the screen. We've got lots of slides because there are lots of scripture to cover. The Apostle Paul is finally in Jerusalem. He is finally in Jerusalem. The book of Acts took 21 chapters, but Paul is finally in Jerusalem now as he is looking forward to his last remaining years on earth. And he has two primary goals to go to Jerusalem, to proclaim the gospel to his people, the Jews, because he still loves them, cares for them, wants them to come to saving faith that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And he's also looking forward to going to Rome, the center, the epicenter of the pagan world. And he wants an opportunity to preach the gospel there. Acts chapter 21, verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia came uh, and saw Paul at the temple. Do you remember why he was at the temple? Do you remember last week? Do you remember last week? He paid for a bunch of guys' haircuts. He went through the ceremony of purification so that he could appease the Jews to know that he's not trampling on their cultural laws. He is one of them. But look what happens. So he does this, and look what happens. They stirred up the whole crowd, that's the Jews, and seized him shouting, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut while they were trying to kill him. Do you, do you picture that? They dragged this guy and they are beating the you-know-what out of him. And they have one goal in mind. They want to kill him. Okay, a mob is descending on Paul like a prey and he is getting the snot beat out of him. The news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He had once took some officers and soldiers and ran down the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. Since the commander could not get the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting away with him, away with him. Stop there for a moment. Uh, Many commentators have noticed how the the gospel writer Luke is painting this picture paralleling the sufferings of Paul with the sufferings of Christ. Matter of fact, when you study the book of Luke and the last week of Jesus's life, as he is heading towards Jerusalem, you see a lot of similarities between what Paul goes through and what Jesus goes through. For example, first, Paul comes to Jerusalem knowing that he is going to suffer there. In the same way, Jesus came to Jerusalem knowing that he would be killed there. Second similarity, Paul at the temple, do you remember, is accused of teaching against our law and this place. And do you remember, some people accused Jesus of speaking against the temple when he said, tear it down, and I'm going to raise it up in three days. Third similarity, Paul is beaten in Jerusalem to within an inch of his life to those who arrested him. Jesus, of course, was beaten and eventually crucified on the cross. Fourth, though Jews apprehended Paul, Paul will ultimately stand trial under Roman law. In the same way, Jesus stands before who? Pilate. Fifth similarity. Even the cries, crowds' cries are the same. Do you remember? With Paul, they're crying, away with him. Away with him. With Jesus, they cried out what? Crucify him. Crucify him. And lastly, Paul's accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple area. By the way, according to Roman law, that was illegal. And Roman government actually gave Jews the authority to kill anybody that did that. The Gentiles. Jesus, of course, was accused an attack for eating with and receiving sinners, tax collectors, and ultimately Gentiles. So the question is asked, what's, Paul, what's Luke doing? Is he, is he trying to you know, sort of venerate Paul and saying, oh, Paul, he's like Jesus. No. Is that what he's doing? Some people would take it even farther and go, and so sufferings of Paul, just like sufferings of Christ, have redemptive value. That's absolutely not what Luke is doing. Here's what Luke is doing He's reminding us of two truths, real quick, that's found throughout the New Testament. Here's the first one He's reminding us that suffering is inevitable for all Christians. That suffering is inevitable. For all Christians. Let me show you some scripture passages. Okay. Real quick. First Peter chapter two, verse 21. To this you were called. By the way, this is like handful of many, many New Testament because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. That's all Paul is doing. That's all that's happening to him. Jesus Christ suffered. Paul. I'm just following his example. Second passage, Romans 8, 7. Now for our children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Everybody look up here. This is the trajectory of the Bible. The cross before the resurrection. Suffering before glory. Cross before the resurrection suffering than glory. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, for it has been granted to you. Thank you. It's a gift. It's a privilege. The Bible says. Granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer from Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. We don't want to hear this, but guess what? The way that you and I become more and more and more and more like Jesus is through suffering. Suffering. The comfortable Christian life devoid of any suffering is not the real Christian life one more 1 Peter 4 verse 12 dear friends do not be surprised at the painful trials you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed how many of us respond like that When's the last time you went through suffering and you rejoiced that you got to participate, follow the example of your Savior? Do you know why this is so foreign to us? Do you know this sounds so weird to our ears? Do you know why this is in some circles offensive today in the Christian life? Because what sells, what's popular is a brand of Christianity that would have you believe. That even though Jesus clearly says, anyone who wants to follow me must carry the cross and then follow me. What's popular, what sells is a Christian life that says it's about comfort, it's about security, it's about safety, and ultimately, it's about your happiness. See, 20 years ago, when people shared the gospel, they opened up with, God loves you. And he has a wonderful plan for your life. Today, when you go up to somebody and say, God loves you, the response is, really? Because I love me too. That makes two of us. That's awesome. What do you got? Well, He has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, he must. If he loves me, because I love me too. It's a theology that's produced a bestseller in the Christian market called Your Best Life Now. I have to be very careful where I tread. I'm not going to judge anybody because the Lord knows. But I will say this. He pastors the largest church in America, fastest growing church in America. So people are clearly very interested in it. He's also sold this book that sold millions and millions of copies all over the world. The book is called Your Best Life Now. And your best life now, this is according to him. It's how to achieve happiness by getting what you want and developing your full potential to which you go, ah, can I just say something? I don't know about you, but my potential apart from God is pretty scary. Okay, let me say it differently. I know it's popular in some Christian circles talk about, you have all this potential. Let me tell you what my potential apart from the spirit of God working in my life is. My potential is to be arrogant My potential is to lust. My potential is to hate. My potential is to be greedy and materialistic. That's my potential apart from Christ. I'm just saying. So somebody blindly says, reach your maximum potential. I go, I don't know if I want to do that. (laughs) You tracking with me, but see, I say that. Some of you are like potential, but isn't that a Christian? That's not a Christian concept. Deconstruction this morning. Your potential, my potential, apart from Christ, is total depravity. But with Christ, glorious. Now here's, it is good news. It is good news. So he says, he says... So your best life now is about happiness and success and in terms of, of course, earthly blessing, right? A better job, better house, a stronger marriage, better health, and even good parking spot at a crowded mall. Yeah, that helps. Can I ask you something? If you have swallowed this wholehearted, are you with God because he's God or are you with God because he does things for you that we want him to do? Can you truly say from the bottom of your heart, Christian follower of Jesus, God minus everything equals nothing. God plus nothing equals everything. Can you say that from the bottom of your heart? The Christian life. So he goes on. How do you get your best life now? Of course, positive thinking. Oh, so that's it. Okay. Think more positive thoughts. To experience this immeasurable favor, you must rid yourself of that small-minded thinking. That's my problem. I Think too small-minded. And start expecting God's blessing. You must make room for increasing your own thinking, and then God will do- bring those things to pass. It's called declaring God's favor. I, I know that some of us come from circles where we talk about God's favor, God's favor. There is God's favor that advances his glory and his mission. And then there's God's favor that says, my happiness and prosperity and wealth. The latter is not biblical. So he's very proud of saying, when he goes into a crowded restaurant, finds no seats, he says, God, Jesus, please have favor in this situation. And the waitress will open up a seat for me so I can sit right away. Here's the problem with this mindset. In case you're going, why are you ripping on a book? Because here's the reason why. It is antithetical to scripture. Because here's the experience of the Bible, you guys, okay? The experience of the Bible, the experience of the Bible is that from Abraham to Paul, those who follow God, men and women of great faith, were subjected to suffering and death. How do you reconcile, if this is success, how do you reconcile with this, the fact that the most successful person who ever walked on the face of this earth died on the cross? Are you familiar with Hebrews chapter 11? the chapter of men and women of faith. Let me show you something. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. It says, what more then shall we say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and ministered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead and raised to life. Now, of course, we love that, right? we like, Wow, now that's what I'm talking about. That's the Christian life. Now here's the thing. Some of you, this will be your life. Your life will be unexplainable in terms of how powerfully God will work in your life. You will shut the mouths of lions. You will quench the fury of the flames. Your life will be full of miracles that you can't explain because you expected God to move in a powerful way. You will conquer kingdoms and administer justice. You will do these amazing things. Now here's the problem. Not everyone gets that story. There's another side to faithful men and women who live lives of greatness and significance. And it's immediately followed. Check this out. Hebrews 11.35. Others were tortured. Oh, no, no, no. I don't like that. Peter, I like the first part, you know? Those guys that... And they refused to be released. Well, why would you do that? If you're being tortured and they say you can go, why would you refuse to go? I'll tell you in a bit why. So that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging. Well, so others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed into. two. Ah, that hurts. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. I love that. Does anybody else want that for your life? The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the grounds. Now listen up, everybody. Everybody look up here. I'm trying to deconstruct some of the the, the, These two stories, the first half of Hebrews 11 and second half, are not a contradiction to God. They are not a contradiction to God, as if one was the true Christian life and the other one wasn't. God never intended for all our lives to be the same. Here's the principle I need to drill into your heads. Here it is. It's up on the screen. God's promise in scripture is not that everything will go well for us, but that our lives will be well lived. God's promise in scripture is not that everything will go well for us, but that our lives will be well lived. And this passage is powerful for me because there's some young people that are on this list, which reminds me that how long you live doesn't necessarily determine how well you live your life. So what does a well life look like? Do you want that? Here it is. Finishing up. Hebrews 1139. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that together with us, they would be made perfect. Do you know what it means to live well? It means choosing to take the path that God called you to and no one else. Even if that means you will experience suffering and hardships. Living a life well means that we get our heads on straight about how we determine success in the kingdom. And that means that what brings God sometimes the most glory and honor is that we are willing to fail in the eyes of the world because we are choosing to follow the path that God has called us to, even if it means hardship, even if it means suffering. The passage I'm reminded of is at the end of Jesus' life, as he's resurrected. Jesus tells Peter, Peter, you're going to experience some tremendous suffering. And you know what Peter does? Peter points to John and goes, what about him? Do you remember that? Faithfulness for Peter meant being historically, we're told, hung upside down on the cross. He lived his life well. While John died an old death on the line, the island of Patmos writing a bunch of epistles and letters. Here's another principle closely related to that. Faith isn't measured by success. Faith is measured by faithfulness. It's the willingness to do what's right. It's the willingness to do what God has called us to, regardless of the consequences, regardless of the cost. And yes, the world... We we'll look at these lives and go, what a failure, what a waste. Let me ask you a question. Are you willing to fail in the eyes of the world? Because they define success by better marriage, better health, more material blessings. Are you willing to fail in the eyes of the world? If success means that you choose the path that God has called us to, and you're willing to do what's right and be faithful to what has God has called you to, even if that means hardship and suffering. How do you define success? How do you define a life well lived? You know what scripture says? These guys. Life well lived. Because they're faithful. Because they're faithful. Your best life now. Here's how I will put it. Your best life is when you move from a life that simply looks for security to a life that longs to make an impact for his kingdom wherever and however God moves. Your best life is moving past beyond just forgiveness and saying, God, I thank you that I'm forgiven and beginning to live out your life passionately and pursuing the call for which God has called you to. Your best life is not settling for comfort, security, success, and a good marriage or a good job. Even those are good things. Moving past those things and saying, success in my life means that I'm faithful. I am faithful. I am faithful to what God has called me to. Everybody look up here. Give up your small ambitions. Give up your small ambitions of thinking these small little lives. Picket fence, a house, a nice family, and a nice job. There's nothing wrong with that. But God has more. Give up your small ambitions. And pursue more. Pursue more. Don't settle for less. That sufferings of Christ will flow over into our lives. Secondly, why? Real quick, why do sufferings of Christ flow into our lives? There are a number of reasons how we experience suffering, some unexplained, some, yes, unjust, and we don't have time to go into that today. There are folks who suffer unjust suffering, and we are called as people of God to fight those injustices. But today in Scripture, Here's why we experience sufferings of Christ. Jesus Christ category said, anybody who wants to follow me must take up the cross and follow me. That means, Matthew 16, 24, here's the principle. If we simply obey Christ, at various points we'll suffer because we're simply being obedient. Let me give you some examples. Sometimes telling the truth and refusing to lie and be a man of integrity or woman of integrity will bring on suffering in our lives. How many of you know what that's like? I've talked to folks in our church whose career advancement was stalled or even fired because they refused to lie. And while they watched people around them lie and cheat their way to the top and they refused, they refused to lie. They refused to take shortcuts. They refused to compromise their integrity. Suffering. Second. It's been said that the people that could hurt us the most are people that we love the most. How many of you guys experienced suffering in your life because you poured out your heart to somebody because God called you to and then they just betrayed you and broke your heart? Anybody? Sometimes suffering is invited into our lives when we obey Christ to love the unlovable, to be there for those who may betray us and continually and faithfully ministering grace of God on them. Suffering because we love other times, lastly, we'll suffer persecution by others for our Christian profession. Everybody who lives a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. And even in a society like ours where there's Christian majority and religious freedom, I'll tell you what, if you are bold and courageous in your profession, you will at some point experience bias and prejudice or sometimes outright hostility and opposition. If you're not a coward about professing your faith, you will experience... Suffering in the form of persecution. Jesus said, all men will hate you because of me. The student is not above his master. Matthew ten, twenty-two, and 24. That suffering is inevitable. Why? Suffering comes. Is this good news? One step at a time. One step at a time. If I could just have you walk out of here going, so my potential, hmm, good enough. Okay, verse 37, here we go. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied, Hey, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists into the desert some time ago? By the way, that was an actual historical event. You could check it out. Paul answered, No, wrong guy. I am a Jew. From Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Can you take note of what he says next? Let's read it together. Ready? Here we go. Ready? Please. Let's read that together. Ready? Please. What just happened before that? Here's what I'm envisioning. Paul is bleeding on the side of his mouth. He's got wealth all over his head because he's been stoned and kicked. His clothes are ripped, okay? The crowd is still hovering over him. (laughs) He's being dragged away by soldiers, okay? And he says, hold on a minute. I want to speak to them. Let me ask you something. If you were in Paul's position, what would you be feeling right now? What emotions would be going through your mind? get me out of here Darius says yes what is fear it's fear So somebody it's fear like what the heck I've been beaten to an inch of my life and I could die here at the hands of these freaks get me the heck out of here what else would you be feeling anger I'd be off I'd be sitting there going My emotions would be running so high, my big old forehead would be shining, right? And bright red, right? And I'd be sitting there going, I'm angry and I kill somebody and I'm afraid and I want to run. I'm feeling anger, I'm feeling fear. I'm feeling anger, I'm feeling fear. And yet somehow, Paul manages emotions and he says, I want to talk to them about Jesus. What? Secondly, danger. He is literally being carried over by the soldiers. And there are thousands of Jews that are sitting on him, which means they could easily overwhelm the soldiers and finish the job if they wanted to. And yet, Paul says, I need to tell them about Jesus. Which makes me wonder, why would he care enough about them? Can anybody else relate? Why would he care about them enough at that moment? These people just tried to kill me. Why would I even care enough about them to want to share? And secondly, how could he be bold and courageous enough to want to share the gospel? The love of Paul and the courage of Paul right here, right here. The Bible says is something that you and I could have. Oh, yes. I'm talking to you who even when some of your non-Christian friends say, tell me about Jesus. Please, 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 please. Okay, I guess I will. Even you, even you, you could have the courage and love. I thought about this passage a lot. I thought about all those years I've been overseas when I've been in, not in same situations. I've never been faced with the hostile mob, but I remember standing in the middle of a street overseas somewhere. With a bunch of people who are looking at me like I am a freak. Specifically, I remember one moment in Tashkent, Uzbekistan. And I remember this overwhelming just fear and dread just coming over me. Just terrified. Just absolutely terrified. And I think about those moments even in the city of Chicago. When I'm presented with an opportunity perhaps to proclaim and talk about Jesus. And yet cower in fear. And I thought a lot about you guys and I go, it's not just necessarily the fact that we lack love. But we lack courage. Courage. We like boldness, and C.S. Lewis. I love this quote. Said, "Courage isn't just one of those interesting sides or character attributes. It is at the center. It is at the center. It is at the anchor of all of our other character attributes. It is your courage that makes you loving. It is your courage that makes you patient. It is your courage that makes you all these things." So I thought about it. I'm like, "How did they get this?" And then I remembered. And then I remembered. I remember throughout the book of Acts How we've seen this over and over again Courage, boldness, courage, boldness And we just kind of glanced over it And I realized you guys While I was studying this week That we got it totally wrong We got it totally wrong We got it totally wrong What do I mean? Well, let me show you Okay, Acts chapter 4 Acts chapter 4 I'm so excited about this part I couldn't wait to come to this part And if you resonate with this Shout, holler, amen, clap Whatever you want to do. Acts chapter 4 Background, background, background Acts chapter 4 Peter and John, John had been arrested by the Jewish leaders. And they basically said to him, you continue to preach the gospel. We're going to kill you. And so they're going back home after this threat. And as they're going back home, they're walking down the street. And Peter looks at his, there's a poster of his face on the wall of Jerusalem. It says, wanted. John says, look at that, Peter. He looks on the other side. There's a face picture of John on the wall. It says, wanted. They're going down to Jerusalem knowing That the entire city is up in arms about these disciples. And here's what happens. They go back to their friends. In verse 23, we pick up. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servants, our father David. Why did the nations rage and people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threat. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. There's two things that I noticed about this this week. You know what it is? Number one, they never pray for protection, they never pray for protection. They never say, God, protect us. How many of you, that would be the first prayer? Going back, God, protect us. Lord, protect him. Lord, protect him. Secondly, they don't pray for boldness until much later. And it's not just for boldness. It's boldness to speak. Do you know what they do? Here's what they do in this passage. Look at it carefully. First of all, there's a connection to their heart weakness, their fear with the attributes of God. What they do is they spend a great deal of time reflecting on and praising God for his greatness and for his power. And they especially concentrate on his sovereignty and his control of all things. In other words, they don't pray for boldness. But the way they find boldness is that they pray for themselves and heal their weak hearts by reminding themselves of who God is and what he has done. Here's the principle. Here's the principle. Boldness comes when we heal ourselves of our fear by meditating on the attitude of God most antithetical to our fear In other words Don't pray God. I'm worried. Help me not to worry It's nowhere in scripture instead. God says pray in his wisdom Pray in his power Meditate and pray in his character Why are you afraid? I don't know the future. Why are you afraid? I can't control people and circumstances precisely. But who does God and he is wise. He is loving. He is powerful. How many of you are afraid? How many have worries? Don't go home and go, God, help me not to worry. I don't want to be worried. Instead, pray in God in your wisdom. You know what's best for me. And I trust you. And I trust you. Don't pray for confidence. Nobody prays for confidence in scripture. God, I want to be more confident. Why are you insecure? How do you deal with your insecurity? By asking God for confidence. No, you pray in his love, his grace, his power. God, your love, your power, your grace, your approval is all I need to have joy today. I meditate and I pray in his character, his nature. Don't pray for self-control. God, help me to be more self-controlled. It's not in scripture. What do you do? You pray in his holiness. Be holy. Therefore, as I am holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We are called to heal our hearts by meditating on and praying in his character. Is that good news to anybody? Oh, Lord, it is phenomenal news. So when you pray and you hear somebody go, Lord, help me not to worry about my future, stop them and go, whoa, 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 whoa. Pray in his wisdom. God in his wisdom knows what is best for you. He is wise. He is wise. Second thing they do, they connect their heart weaknesses again, their circumstances with promises and statements in scripture. You know what, guys? I drill this into it over and over again. Do you know why you need to know scripture? Because if you don't know God, you can't live this life. Look at what they do. Psalm 2. They go to Psalm 2. That's where they're getting it from. Psalm 2. Remember King David's words. He's literally, they're, they're, they're praying Psalm 2. They're praying scripture. It's what King David says. Someday rulers and authorities will conspire against the Messiah and they will persecute him and kill him. And then they remember about what Herod and Pilate did indeed to Jesus. And they're looking at their lives and going, we're stuck in the same situation. But then they remember, aha, 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 some too, some too. But they did what your will and your power determined them to do. Who's in control? Say it, church. Who's in control? Godhead. They're reflecting on scripture. In other words, please, if you're afraid, don't pray. God, I don't want to be afraid anymore. Please help me not to be afraid. Pray in this truth. From beginning to end, Genesis Revelation, the book shouts out. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is in charge. History is progressing exactly as God wants. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. They heal themselves. They heal themselves of their fear, not by asking God to remove their fear, but they heal themselves by meditating, reflecting on, and praying into their hearts God's sovereign power. Oh, how radically different our lives would be! How radically different our lives would be, Church. If you and I were so consumed with God's Word that we knew his character we knew his nature truly that any circumstances that arise that, that cause us to worry to fear to doubt to be anxious insecure that instead of saying God I'm afraid please help me not to be afraid and secure instead of doing that that we would go back and that we would pray in and meditate into our souls and our depths, the gospel and the truth of who God is. That's why they don't pray for protection. They don't need to pray for protection. If meditated on God, they're. they're Their prayer is literally full of praise and awe and worship. And there's no request to say, God, I need this, I need that. And secondly, they go back to scripture and they meditate on it and they massage their souls with it. And third, instead of God asking God to change the circumstances, they say, God, change our hearts. Here's the third principle. When you are afraid, don't ask so much for a change in our circumstances as it must change in our hearts. Say, God... Help me to see you. Help me to know you. Help me to hear you. Here's a prayer that I lift up um, on a regular basis. When I am afraid, when I worry, when I doubt, it simply goes like this. God, in his wisdom, knows what is best for me. God in his love desires what is best for me. And God in his sovereignty has the power to bring it about. When I'm afraid about my future and I'm saying, God, I don't want to be single for the rest of my life. Will I ever find somebody? And I say, God, instead of saying, God, help me to not worry. God, take I say this. I say, God, you and your wisdom know what's best for me. You and your love, God, you desire what is best for me. And God, in your sovereignty, you alone have the power to bring it about. When I'm afraid of the future and not know what awaits, I think of couples in our church that don't know if they'll ever have a child. I think of couples in our church that have lost jobs and don't know if they're going to be financially okay. Instead of saying, God, will you take away my fear, take away my worry, God, instead of saying, God, will you help me not be afraid, we pray in, God, you in your wisdom know what's best for me. God, you and your love desire what is best for me. And God, you and your sovereignty, you alone have the power to bring it about. We pray in his boldness. We pray in the courage. Pray it in. We pray it in. We pray it in. We're going to finish last long section for today it's essentially one big section it's when he finally gets up and paul shares the gospel with these people this uh, morning i got or yesterday i got a a little thing from one of our church members on facebook and he posted something about christianity and church and one of his non-christian friends replied back say i hate christians but you're okay you're not so bad and he said, along the lines of, "Peter, this is what really saddens me: is that we've got this reputation with a lot of people in the world." And I just want to—I just want to read to you. Here's Paul. He gets up, bleeding, naked. He's well, and he says what he says here. It's his testimony. He does this like two, three more times at the rest. But I want just highlight after I read it, a couple things about what it means to be witness and how we do it well. Verse 40, having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I'm a Jew born of Tarsus Cilicia, brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women, throwing them into prison. As also the high priest and all the council can testify, even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus, and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, and you can see just Paul slowing down. About noon, I came near Damascus, and suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go to Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus, because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a divine observer of the law, highly respected by all the Jews living there. By the way, guys, as he's talking, thousands of Jews, hush. hush. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now what you are waiting, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away. Here's a key word to the Gentiles. Then the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. How is Paul's speech? Great teaching moment for us. Here it is. I don't know why I'm sweating like a pig, man. You guys see that out there? I'm like dripping sweat up here. Lord, yeah. Can I? Lord have mercy. You all sweating out there too? It's just me? What's that? I'm working hard. Excuse me. Oh, Sorry. First of all, notice that Paul's defense doesn't consist of a well-reasoned discourse or even a general sermon. What does he do? He shares his testimony. I think this is brilliant. Can you imagine? They're breathing down. He says, let me ask you something. If you die tonight, where do you think you'll go? What? Right? <laughs> they're breathing down their necks. right? He said, they're going, God loves you. And he has a wonderful plan what does he do? What does he do? Brilliant. Because at that moment, they're not going to listen to a discourse. They're not going to listen to a sermon. They want to kill him. You know what he says? He goes, he gets up, He goes, I'm just like you. What? What? Did he just say what we did? Th- and he says in Aramaic, and I'll tell you why that was brilliant. But he gets something. He goes, I'm just like you. Shh. We think. Sharing the gospel has to be, we need to be Bible answer, man. The most powerful tool that we can use is your personal, what? Story. Paul says, let me tell you my story. Second thing he does, he speaks in Aramaic. Do you know why? Do you know why? Check this out. Check this out. So he speaks to the guy in Greek, right? Soldier in Greek. And then he turns to the crowd and he says, no, 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 in Aramaic, right? (laughs) Whatever. Whatever. Because that's the two things. One, these are Jews. And the problem with Paul is he disregards the law. He's not one of us. He is trampling our culture. He is just, he just spoke our mother tongue. Chill out. Hold on a minute. He just spoke our, he just spoke Aramaic. My grandma speaks Aramaic. Hold on a minute. Immediately they're going, he's, he's one, he's one of us? What? What? I am totally confused now. I am totally confused. Secondly, the reason why he speaks in Aramaic is this. The Jews that were there, check that out, the Jews that were there, this was a time of a feast, meaning they were Jews of the diaspora. They were Jews that are living all over the world, meaning their primary language and culture is Greek. So they don't know Aramaic that well. So when Paul starts speaking Aramaic, they're going, it's like what I do when I speak with my grandmother, and she speaks Korean, right? I don't know it that well, so I go, I gotta try extra hard, I gotta, what? Well, Anybody relate? Anybody relate? Like English, like your second language? Anybody? So they're speaking, and they're going, hold on a minute. Wait, okay. I kind of know everybody. Shh, listen, listen. Shh. What's he saying? Brilliant move. Third, 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 third. Everything about the early part of the testimony, do you notice? Serves to show the crowd how much he is one of them. He says what? Brothers, brothers, brothers. Secondly, he goes, I grew up in Jerusalem. He did what? Third, he says, I was trained under Gamaliel. Gamaliel? Gamaliel, dude, that's like... That's like... <laughs> Gamaliel is one of the most respected rabbis of all. One of the most religious, respected religious leaders. You would have seen his face on the, on the cover of Time Magazine. As the Pharisee par excellence of 10 AD. And they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did he say Gamaliel? He did. That dude was trained to the Gamaliel? He's one. Fourth. He goes on to say, he was just as violently fanatical for his faith and the people as the violent mob was that day. Do you know what he's doing? He is going out of his way to identify with it. He's going out of his way to go, you know what? You know what? I got, I got to tell you something. I really love your passion. passion to kill you. I know, I know, but I really love you. And he's not being facetious. He's not being sarcastic. Paul is literally saying, you need to know I am one of you. I grew up in Jerusalem. I speak fluent Aramaic. I care about the law. I was trained in the Gamaliel and your passion for the law. I share that. Your passion and zeal for God, holiness. I share that. Why is that important? Because everybody by this time is going, then what the heck happened to you? he wants them fifth he then tells the story of his vision encounter with jesus again they would have said how can someone like you experience that kind of a turnabout how can someone like you how can someone like you change how can someone like you and then lastly in case you're going well peter but when yep lastly Paul only begins to bring up the less palatable parts of his message gradually. Do you see that? He begins as he shares all the things that they agree on. He goes out of his way to identify with them. And then he finally moves to the parts of the message that will be challenging to their views. So when he finally mentions the word Gentiles, that's when they go nuts. Why is that important? Is it just not common sense, a good mission of witness to try and reserve the offensive parts first? I mean, when I'm talking to Bogey at the alderman's office, the first thing they want to talk about is hell. I'm like, yeah, we could talk about that. We talk about that. Do you know why he brings that up? Do you know why he brings that up? Because all of his encounters with Christians was this. If you don't agree, if you don't live well, you're going to go to what? Hell. That's his response. So he wants to bring up the most offensive. And I go, Bogey, let's put that right over here. What if I told you that Jesus Christ didn't come so that good people can go to heaven, bad people would go to hell? What would you think? But would they go to hell? Let's not talk about that now. Let's not talk about them. I believe in hell. But listen, it is good missional witness where Paul identifies, shares a story, goes out of his way to compliment, get in agreement with them, and then finally says, and here's what you need to know. Couple principles and we're done, you guys. One, what does this have for us? Effective communication of the gospel combines both loving and courage and deep sensitivity. Effective communication of the gospel combines both loving, courage, and deep sensitivity. See the incredible balance in Paul. And I need to share this with you guys. Just, this is so lacking today. This is so lacking today because we, we if you're like me, either we, we, we refuse to say anything or we speak offensively. Anybody else relate? We either say nothing or we speak offensively. But see the incredible balance in Paul as he ministers and shares the gospel. First of all, the boldness. I mean, these are guys that are trying to kill him. And yet, Paul had the courage and was willing to take the opportunity to speak. Everybody say initiative. Say initiative. That's for some of us the big first step. We're sitting there going, until somebody comes to me and says, You're a Christian, right? Can you please tell me how I can know Jesus? Please, 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 please. Then we go, All right, since you asked. The Bible says, Take more initiative. (laughs) Be more courageous. Don't wait for people to go. Please, 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 please. Take the initiative. Be more courageous. Be more will. But secondly, look at how he goes out of his way to be generous and flexible with this communication of the gospel. He avoids all unnecessary offense. He shows great respect for their worldview. By the way, can I just tell you something? When you're talking to someone of another faith, I've said this before, it goes a long way. When you, instead of going, you're a Muslim? Well, then you're going <laughs> to... It goes a long way to say to them, the God that you believe and the God that I believe might have some things in common. Let's talk. It's good to talk to a, a Buddhist who's this been on search for spirituality to go. You know what? Your search for spirituality, your search for deep meaning as part of your religion is something actually that I might share in common. Let's talk about that. He identifies with them. He compliments them. He gives them credit where credit is due. In the end, he tells them everything they need to know, but he stresses a positive and the inoffensive first and gradually moves to the difficult. Courage, deep sensitivity. Second principle, effective witness of the gospel will often invite both persecution as well as praise. And this is inevitable. Effective communication, underline that, effective communication of the gospel will invite both persecution as well as praise. This incident here needs to be put in the context of the rest of the book of Acts. Daddies, you can come on up rest of the book of Acts Acts chapter 2 verse 47 where it says early Christians enjoy the favor of all the people Acts chapter 4 verse 32 22 that says people were praising God for what had happened and that many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000 in other words as a church they were both suffering sharp persecution sharp persecution and enjoying enormous popularity they were both suffering under the hands because of their willingness to live for the gospel and they were enjoying broad based support they were both attractive and growing and yet hated and attacked. Attractive and growing, had an attack. Ramifications. One, if you and I experience absolutely only attacks, only persecution without any sign of faithfulness, without any sign of attractiveness, it may mean that we are being persecuted, frankly, for being too harsh and insensitive or arrogant. It may mean that we are being not persecuted. Jesus Christ says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's one thing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Another thing to be persecuted because we're insensitive, we're arrogant, or discourteous, or lack warmth and respect in dealing with those who don't know him. Just as much as cowardly Christians will have praise but no persecution insensitive arrogant Christians will have only persecution no praise let me show you how this works out it's not unusual after Thanksgiving or Christmas I get a college student who comes back from break and they'll say to me Pastor Pete I had a horrible time at home I'm like why nobody in my family are Christian I go oh really he said, how did it go I said well I just let him have it <laughs> what do you mean well, they're my family, so I just told them, you know, I told them that they were believing wrong and they needed to believe right, and they were just coming at me, so on and so forth. So I said to them, I said, "Can I ask you something?" I said, I said "How, uh, how much did you go out of your way to make sure that you were being sensitive, that you were going out of your way to compliment their worldview, what 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 they believe that might have in common with you? W- were you out to win an argument, or were you out to win their hearts?" Uh, How often do you pray and pray for opportunities to talk about the gospel? How how much did you make sure that you combined deep humility? Because the gospel gives us that along with confidence. If you and I are living our lives where all we're experiencing from some of us, and I imagine this is just a handful of you guys, is only persecution and no praise. It may not necessarily be because of our righteousness. Some of us we experience no attacks or persecution for our faith it means that we're simply being cowards. If you and I get through our christian lives without ever upsetting anyone, without ever offending anyone, without ever without ever saying anything as someone would disagree with it means that we need to be more bold. We need to be more bold. We need to be more courageous. It means that we need to take more initiative. Ensuring the gospel. And for some of us, frankly, it means expanding our circle of influence. Because we have no contact with non Christians. Let me leave you with this last biblical principle. Effective communication of the gospel puts the emphasis and confidence where it belongs. Here's a passage I want you to leave with. For it is. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Can we all say this together? Here we go. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. One more time. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Where's the power, you guys? Where's the power? Where's the power? See, where's the power? The gospel. Paul says the audacity of it. That's why he talked about it in every message. He says, the power of the gospel, the power of witness is not your eloquence. Power is not your passion, energy, and zeal. The power is not all of these things. The power of the gospel lies in the gospel itself. It, the power, lies in the gospel. It's all you need. Shh. Share it, proclaim it, witness to it. Father, we come together today. Oh Lord, um, how I so long for the kind of love and boldness of Paul. How I so long for a kind of deep, compassionate love and courage in the face of such danger. God, how I pray for such incredible balance, God, of boldness and sensitivity, of such warmth and love, as well as deep, deep compassion. God, I believe that you want to use this church and the men and women that are part of this family to expand your kingdom and to boldly proclaim the gospel. Holy Spirit, as we take communion, will you speak to us in personal ways that we need to be spoken to this morning? That as we take these elements, God, that the deeper assurance of who you are and what you have done will wash over us, will wash over us, will wash over us, will wash over us. And the truth of the gospel of your unconditional love and acceptance and your sacrifice for us, indeed, will give us the boldness that we need. The night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and when he broke it, he said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you take it, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, the cup of the new covenant, and he poured it out and he said, this is my blood, blood that will shed for you. For you, the messed up, the broken, the addicted, the afflicted, the, the, the sinners, the one that can't be good and recognize you're bad. Because it is by the virtue of my blood shed for you, my sacrifice, that you are accepted, that you are declared righteous and holy and acceptable in the sight of God. The Lord invites us to his table. Whenever you're ready, Come. Myself and the prayer team will be near the cross. And if you need prayer this morning, you're in need of prayer, not for God to take away your fear, your worry, anxiety, but you just need community brothers, sisters, laying their hands on you and praying in, meditating in, praying in, get tributes of God, the nature of God, the truth of God. Come on up. Man, I'd love to pray for you. We would love to pray for you and your circumstances situation today. Come, the Lord invites us. The Lord invites us. Hallelujah. 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 We all stand together. God, we pray that truth into our soul. We meditate and pray that truth in our soul. No matter what the circumstances, our lives are in the hands of a sovereign, wise, loving, perfect God. It is, it is, it is, it is, it is. No matter the trial, no matter the persecution, no matter the suffering, no matter the hardships, no matter the difficulties. Our confidence and our anchor is in the character and the attribute and the nature of our God No matter what our lives are in your your hands Not my boss not my parents not the world not my company Not my school not my friends My life is in your, 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 your hands. Your hands. Your heavenly father, in whose hands your life is in, in his wisdom, he knows what is best for you. Our Heavenly Father, whose life your hands is in, who, your life whose hands is in, in His love, He desires what is best for you. And in His sovereignty, He and He alone has the power to bring it about. No matter what, my life, your life, our life, is in His. His. In the name of the Father, In the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, and all of God's people said, and all of God's people said, Amen. Have a great week. Find strength in who he is. He is for you. Have a great week, you guys.